Welcome back to Rubrics, a podcast from St. Timothy's Episcopal Church. I am Father Luke Klingstead, and I'm all alone today. Father Steve got to do his solo episode a couple of weeks ago when I was out of town, and now the roles are flipped, and so it is just me today. And so what I want to do is um, talk for a bit about whether or not Christmas is Christian. I don't know if this um, shows up on your social media feeds every year as much as it does for me. We're probably in different circles, but you may have heard, you know, accusations get lobbed about how Christmas is pagan and uh, idolatrous and Christians shouldn't be celebrating it. And they're silly for thinking that December 25th has any significance. It was actually a, a pagan celebration. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And, and more importantly, whether or not that actually matters. And so Christmas is a few days away. We're going to talk a little bit about Christmas, uh, practices around it, and, and whether or not it is a uh, Christian. Today is an ember day. Uh, I preached in the Daily Mass today about um, how it might seem a little strange that uh, the church asks you to fast a few days before Christmas. Ember days uh, occur four times a year in each season, and uh, the winter one is after St. Lucy's Day, December 13th, and it's the Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday after December 13th. And so because of where that fell this year, um, these Ember days are right before Christmas. But it's a good opportunity to um, pause for a moment, and maybe your Advent has been, you know, hectic. Uh, Maybe you're like me and still have some gifts to buy and it snuck up on you. Um, I don't know whether that's because we had a shorter advent this year or whether I have a five-month-old, almost five-month-old at home and time just moves a little quicker. But um, maybe your advent was a little hectic and and maybe you're just, you know, kind of caught up in the the hustle and bustle of, um, you know, all the stores and the shopping and the sweets and the treats and and the church asking you to participate in some restraint, some self-denial might actually do you some good. Uh, I know I know I think it will for me um, because I need that that moment to pull back before Christmas to really sit and 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 you know think about what we're actually doing. Why does this really matter? We'll talk about some of these Christian practices, the trees and the lights and and the food and um, you know that's that's all well and good, but um, it's a it's easy to get caught up in all that extravagance. And so these ember days are for our own benefit. They're asking us to step back, to endure some simplicity, some self-denial, so that we can actually prepare ourselves. So I'm going to open us up with uh, the colic for ember days. It's also a, traditionally a time when people are ordained. Um, and so, you know, the, the prayers usually um, are talking about God's blessings for us and in our thanksgiving for them, or they're talking about for those to be ordained. And so I'm going to uh, pray the, the first of the Ember Day Collects in our prayer book, which is for those to be ordained. Almighty God, the giver of all good gifts, who of thy divine providence has appointed various orders in thy church, give thy grace, we beseech thee, to all who are called to any office and ministry for thy people, and so fill them with the truth of thy doctrine, and clothe them with holiness of life, that they may faithfully serve before thee to the glory of thy great name, and for the benefit of thy holy church. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
So let's talk a little bit about Christmas um, and its origins. Uh, I think there are two real ways to go about this. One is um, talking about the date, December 25th. Where did that come from? Um, that is the one usually that gets accused of being pagan in origin. And then the second one is the practices, the trees, you know, the gifts, uh, Santa Claus, um, all of that, and whether or not those are, are pagan as well. And then also in the midst of this, we're going to ask whether or not this actually matters. Um, so are they pagan? And if so, or if not, does it, does it really matter? So the first one we're going to look at is the date. Um, and again, maybe, maybe this has never even crossed your radar or social media feed like it does for mine, but usually the complaint or accusation goes this way. Um, December 25th was uh, the, the feast or festival of the sun god, of the Roman sun god, um, and Christians simply you know, took that and co-opted it for Christian purposes. Now, on the one hand, there's precedence for this. Christians for, for a long, long, long time, um, and even Israelites in the Old Testament, take uh, cultures or customs or norms and, and repurpose them to actually point to something true. And this is, uh, you know, the story of, of God working through his people. I mean, we have the Ark of the Covenant, which is reminiscent of, you know, other Egyptian things, other Akkadian things, and um, people will say, well, the Israelites are just doing another form of that. And, and that is somewhat true, with the exception that God changes it. Um, he commands them to build the ark, and instead of bowing down to the ark, it houses the presence of God, which is what they worship. They don't worship, you know, gold um, like an idol. They worship the presence of God as he is dwelling inside of the Ark of the Covenant, later the tabernacle and the temple, and then that teaches us something about God made man in Jesus Christ. But um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the origins of December 25th. So why, why is December 25th the day of Christmas? Um, in the Julian calendar, which is created in 45 BC, under Julius Caesar, uh, the winter solstice fell on the 25th. Now it's the 21st, um, and, and part of this whole history is complications of calendars. There was 15 different calendars that people were using, um, and, and you know the Eastern Church had a different calendar than the Western Church, and those differed by uh, 13 days, I think. Um, and so, you know, part of trying to figure out when dates emerged is always complicated, but. Um, the Julian calendar has the solstice on December 25th, and that's 45 BC. That's before Christ was born. And so that's kind of where the origins of this pagan, you know, Christmas come from. Um, but this was not a religious event. Um, this is like, you know, the fact that we have uh, a lunar calendar. But every time there's a full moon that comes around, I mean, people like to, you know, tweet about it in the lunar cycles, but it's not a religious event in America. We don't have festivals and parades, but we do keep it. I mean, it's on, you know, if you have a calendar, it might even have the little symbols of, of the moon um, and how, you know, what stage of the cycle we're in. And so that's kind of what was happening here. You have the winter solstice fell on December 25th. It was simply a way to mark time. Um, it did not have a ton of religious significance. Now, the sun um, was always a part of pagan celebrations, and so the fact that you'd had the longest day of the year would have some religious connotation, but there wasn't a festival on this day. Um, 
the festival does not get uh, established until 274. So the emperor um, Aurelian, or Aurelian, I think I'm pronouncing that right, A-U-R-E-L-I-A-N, um, he kind of reignites this this pagan celebration of the sun god. And this is the real, the real, you know, linchpin there. And so Sol Invictus was his name. I'm going to put a, a picture of, of him up on the screen if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, Sol Invictus, the sun god, um, he, uh, because of Emperor Aurelian, um, starts showing up on coins. Um, they really kind of reignite, you know, his, his worship and his significance in, in Roman culture. Um, and so 274 is when that happens. That's when this religious significance is ascribed to the date of December 25th. Um, and, you know, as a, as a side note, as I mentioned earlier, um, the Eastern Christians, you know, used to celebrate the birth of Jesus on January 7th, January 6th, um, for the epiphany is our epiphany. And that's that, you know, difference in dates based on the Julian calendar or Gregorian calendar. And so, um, December 25th is not even the only date for Christmas historically. There were conversations about when it should take place, but let's just go with December 25th. Um, the question then becomes, was Christ's birth associated with December 25th before 274 or after? If it is um, before 274, then the Emperor Aurelian seems to have... Uh, you know, reignited Sol Invictus on a date that was already significant to Christians. If it was after, then it's a case of Christians taking a pagan celebration and, you know, baptizing it um, and making it more truthful. Uh, so that's that's kind of the question for, for scholars. Uh, there's an Episcopal priest, Thomas Talley, and he has a book um, called The Origins of the Liturgical Year. Um, he was a a uh, great academic scholar. He taught at General Theological Seminary. He taught at Neshota House Theological Seminary for a time um, back in the 70s. I think he died, you know, in the 90s. Um, very, very uh, academic. Um, a lot of his, his work is uh, not the most interesting. He's going back and looking at calendars and the origins of dates and the origins of some of these celebrations. But, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull some ideas from his book because he really helps us understand the importance of trying to nail down the date for Christmas. Um, was Jesus Christ actually born on December 25th? Probably not. Probably not. And so this is not a matter of, um, you know, trying to lynch Jesus's birth to a historical date. Again, we have all sorts of calendars. Um, and so it, it becomes very hard to figure out what was the actual date. Um, but the significance, religiously, liturgically, is kind of what we're after. When did that, you know, kind of get married to the church's practice of the nativity of Jesus? When did that date arise? And so, you know, Tally uh, basically notes that the first historical artifact, the earliest artifact we have, proclaiming Christmas as December 25th, the nativity of Jesus as December 25th, is this um, list that dates back to 336. Um, this actual artifact dates back to 336, and it's a list of uh, burials of monks and bishops. It's kind of like a sanctoral calendar, like a martyrdom account, except it was, you know, the deaths and burials of monks and bishops, and it ran from 
December 25th to December 25th. And it said the beginning of each new year is Christmas, the nativity of our Lord. So by 336, it's well established that um, Jesus Christ, you know, the, the celebration of his birth was on December 25th. Now you'll note that that is after 274. And so when did it actually begin to be associated with that? Well, Tally continues to trace other historical documents, um, sermons from St. Augustine, for example, um, and basically says it's reasonably certain that Christmas was established on December 25th um, well before 311 and likely before 300. So that gets us close to that 274 date for Aurelian um, reigniting Sol Invictus in that pagan celebration. And so, um, you know, this really gets us into why does the feast matter? Or, or why would the early church be concerned with trying to nail down the date of Jesus' birth? And the answer for that is actually in his death. And so, you know, in the early church, um, the, the date of his birth was of less concern than the date of his death. The early church really wanted to figure out when was, when was Easter? When was Good Friday? That is the, the linchpin of our salvation, especially in, in the Western church. The Western church fathers were really, really interested in figuring out what date did he die? Um, and so this opens up a whole new can of worms, because if you've read the Gospels, you know that John gives a different date for his death than Matthew and Mark and Luke. It's either on the day of preparation for the Passover or the, the day of the Passover is when the Last Supper takes place. And then, you know, he's killed on, on Friday the next day. Um, and so, you know, there was all sorts of conversations about um, why did the gospel writers differ on what date they give? And, and, you know, nowadays we would say they're making a theological point. Was Jesus the Passover lamb at the Last Supper? at the institution of the Eucharist, or was him on the cross, the killing of the Passover lamb? And so, you know, they're, they're making theological points, but, you know, to, to paint a broad brush, the early church basically ends up going with John. And so they're looking for a year when Passover falls on a Friday, um, and, you know, they, because Passover is also associated with lunar calendars, we have kind of records of this. And so by the time of Tertullian, who dies in 220. So we're talking about the second century here. Um, most of the early church had concluded that Jesus, they think, died on March 25th in the year 29. Now, we have better calendars nowadays, and we know that um, that particular year, Passover was not on a Friday, so who knows? But we're concerned with the church's work here, not actual historical accuracy. We may never know the date actually that Jesus died, but the church has for a long, long, long time proclaimed March 25th as the date of his death. And so this is interesting um, because there was a common Jewish belief at the time and, and around the time of Jesus Christ especially that the date that some major important prophet or religious figure died was somehow attached to their birth or conception. And so this was, we see this in the early church's writing, that uh, when they began to nail down March 25th, that was the one they cared about. But then they realized, okay, uh, he was probably conceived on this day too. Well, liturgically, what is March 25th? 
It's the Annunciation. It's the Annunciation of the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. It's her conception. It's Jesus' conception. And so you simply do math. What is nine months after that? It's December 25th. And so December 25th was not arrived at because it had associations with the winter solstice. It was actually arrived at because they were just doing math. They solidified, or attempted to, his death date first, March 25th. And then, because there was this uh, belief that for these important people, their death and conception were always on the same day, there was this um, harmony to their life, basically, that they did math and ended up on December 25th. And so, um, trying to date Jesus' birth is simply derivative from the attempt to date his resurrection and crucifixion as well. So, let's, let's summarize. Uh, no, I don't think December 25th is of pagan origins. But it doesn't really matter. The church has baptized pagan customs for a long, long, long time. And so, even if... You know, we, we found some early church father saying, yeah, we picked December 25th because um, we saw pagans doing something that was um, interesting but misguided, and we wanted to redirect that. That'd be fine. But the evidence suggests that uh, December 25th was simply uh, nine months from March 25th, which is when they think he died. Um, and so it doesn't really have much to do with Sol Invictus at all. And they had the March 25th date well into the uh, first century. And so um, we see, you know, kind of reasonably certain that December 25th being associated with Christ's birth was around well before that time when um, Aurelian does the Sol Invictus in 274. Um, we also have, you know, quotes from um, various church writers like uh, Hippolytus of Rome. He's writing sometime around 235 before the 274 date. And he basically says, um, For the first advent of our Lord in the flesh, when he was born in Bethlehem, eight days before the calends of January, well, that would be December 25th, the fourth day of the week, he, he actually gives a date of the week, Wednesday, um, while Augustus was in his 42nd year, 2 or 3 BC, um, but from Adam, 5,500 years. And so Hippolytus is, is trying to be as specific as possible. It's Wednesday, 2 or 3 BC, um, on December 25th. And so that idea, that was in 235. And so, you know, people are, are trying to nail down Jesus' birth um, early, early on. Clement of Alexandria, in, in, born in 150, uh, writes about how there's all sorts of dates thrown around for Jesus' birth. Um, one is January 7th, one is December 25th. And so, you know, was the solstice already established by then? Yeah, but there was no religious significance. There was no feast to Sol Invictus until 274. And so, you know, Christians were not just saying, well, pagan celebrations and Christian kind of go hand in hand, so let's just make them one thing. Um, it, it does really actually seem to be a whole separate uh, conversation. So to summarize, um, for the date, for December 25th, uh, December 25th is only important in its relation to March 25th, which was when the early church think that Jesus died. 
Um, and so the Emperor Aurelian institutes in 274 the Sol Invictus pagan celebration. Um, and, and he probably was making a political statement, trying to unify uh, Rome around one single celebration. Um, we've, we've talked in the past about religious celebrations, even pagan celebrations, bring people together. And so Aurelian uh, was probably trying to bring people together. But Christians had already attached some significance to December 25th being the date of Christ's birth. Now, was it practiced liturgically? A little bit, maybe. Um, we actually have uh, doctors of the church, you know, around the 5th to 7th century, um, recognizing that Christians were participating in this Sol Invictus celebration. And they say, you know, we need to probably strengthen our, our uh, festivities around the birth of Jesus Christ to remind them that um, this pagan sun god is not what we should be worshiping. And so, you know, that's why we have Christian writers, you know, saying that we need to baptize this pagan celebration. And so that's part of why you get people making the claim that Christmas is pagan as well, is we have Christian writers in the fifth or so century saying, um, we need to baptize this custom. And that's, that's fine. Because again, as I've said, and, and this kind of moves us into Christian practices and customs, whether or not those are pagan, Christianity has done this for, for a long, long time and not seen a problem with it. So December 25th, probably not pagan in origin, probably authentically Christian related to the date of his death. Let's move on to Christian practices. Trees, Santa Claus, candy canes, all the fun stuff. Are those pagan? And, and this one um, is you know, more likely to get people riled up. Um, maybe you've met some um, you know, real sticklers. Um, there's even sects of Christianity that, that don't uh, celebrate Christmas. Um, you know, even Presbyterians for a long time uh, in their own kind of liturgical dictionary um, were forbidden or at least encouraged not to celebrate Christmas um, because it was considered, you know, this extra addition, this extra festival um, that kind of detracts from um, the life of the church because it has all these extra things. So, you know, one of the ones that people will bring up is, is Christmas trees. What's the origin of the Christmas tree? Well, it's hard to nail down. We have a German you know, Christians in the 1800s using trees and putting lights on them. Um, but why trees and not, you know, something else um, is, is actually kind of interesting. Trees have often been associated with um, sacred space. And, and this is uh, largely pagan um, with other religious traditions doing a similar thing. But Especially like in the biblical context, in the ancient Near Eastern context, it's, it's arid. Um, trees were oases. Um, they were symbols of life and sustenance, of fruit. And so they, you know, the dead were a lot of times buried next to a tree because that was supposed to be where divine life was, where this um, source of life and sustenance, uh, you know, were, were to be found. But then we also have... In the Old Testament, um, physical objects marking sacred space. So think about Moses and, and Jacob. Um, when they have divine encounters in the Old Testament, a lot of times they will erect a stone pillar. 
and they will give it a, a name. It's this monument. And it marks something sacred. It marks a sacred space. And, I mean, these are probably origins of, of you know, obelisks and our own stone monuments. Think the Washington Monument. Um, that is, you know, uh, authentically pagan, um, not necessarily religious, uh, symbol of, of something significant, of something sacred even. But it has its roots, you know, possibly in even the Old Testament. And so... It's not like Moses and Jacob were worshiping these stones. They were reminders for the people who came after them that something sacred happened here. Somebody met God here. And so this should direct our attention to the presence of God that is in that space. Um, they're not worshiping the stone, but it, it directs their minds to something deeper, something more um, spiritually true. And so you know, putting a tree up in your home, um, people will lob accusations that that's pagan and that's idolatry. It's not. Um, just because you have a tree in your home. Now, if you're bowing down and worshiping a tree, yeah, I'll probably get rid of it. But I, I've never met somebody who actually does that at Christmas. So keep the tree. Um, we have a tree in our home. <clears throat> and it's, a you know, apart from um, being just a nice visual image of light and warmth <clears throat> and... Um, you know, the evergreen trees that we put in our home, kind of this reminder of even eternal life, even in the midst of the dark days of winter. But um, it is not, you know, idolatry. Um, it even actually has roots in this ancient practice of trees or stones marking a divine encounter. So maybe tonight that helps you look at your Christmas tree a little differently. Maybe you see the light in the tree as a reminder of the divine light of Jesus Christ that, that fills, you know, the dark places in the depths of winter. But, you know, this whole conversation, <clears throat> excuse me, is a, a good reminder that the entire Christmas story is a story of God uh, interjecting himself into human history. So the world around us becomes, um, you know, God's sandbox, to kind of put it in a, in a strange way. We have uh, all of this culture, all of this custom, all of this context, this historical context, and Christ actually enters into that. He doesn't enter into this uh, abstraction of human history. He actually becomes a human uh, just like we are. He has, um, you know, complex family trees. He has, uh, you know, a specific cultural location. He, he grows up going to specific towns and cities. And that's why a pilgrimage to the Holy Land is, is um, worthwhile. And, and it's important for so many people because there's actually a, a concrete context that Christ inhabits in his life. He is not uh, a human only appearing to be so, like the early heretic said. He's a human like we are human, with, with a historical context. And so the whole Christmas story is um, God being revealed through the stuff we have around us. Um, a star becomes a means of divine revelation for the Magi. Um, you know, shepherds and, and angels in the heavens appearing to shepherds become a means by which we encounter the good shepherd um, and even, you know, deeper spiritual truths about Christ. A manger 
becomes a Eucharistic image of Christ as the bread of life, placed in a feeding trough so that he can be food for the world. The whole Christmas story is taking things that already have a meaning and infusing them with a deeper spiritual truth. A manger already has its own meaning. It's a feeding trough. It has its own context. And yet, when it is married with Jesus Christ himself, it takes on a deeper meaning. Um, Stars already had their own meaning. There were already astronomers seeking information from them. And yet, in the incarnation, that star now actually becomes a source of divine truth for the Magi. It actually leads them to something that is really, really true. And so the the Christmas story is a reminder that we can use all sorts of things to tell the Christmas story. We do Christingles, so an orange becomes a means by which people learn about Jesus Christ. Um, we might put up trees which have all sorts of complicated histories, but they might become a means by which the light of Christ is uh, made manifest to us on a day when you know we, we sit and it's been cold and dark and we're somber and we see the warmth of the tree and we remember the light of Christ. Uh, God uses our history. He uses our context to proclaim himself to us. And that's uh, magnificent. That's why the incarnation is worth celebrating. That's why it's worth rejoicing, because um, the stuff around us, our human context, the earth itself, becomes infused with the grace of God, becomes infused with the presence of Jesus Christ, who walks around sanctifying the places where he goes. I mean, that is the good news, that light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. And so, you know, this whole um, question of whether or not Christmas is pagan, um, you know, you might find it interesting to to look at the date and and its relation and reminder that um, Jesus is born to die. And the whole reason December 25th has any meaning is because the early church tried to figure out when he when he was crucified. And you might gain some confidence in saying, this is authentically Christian. This is really ours. And um, it is not, you know, some appropriation of a pagan celebration. But then you might also look at our Christmas uh, customs and say, yeah, those are um, appropriations of pagan customs, and that's okay. The church baptizes those things because God uses customs around us to uh, proclaim the goodness of his redemption, to proclaim the goodness of our salvation. And so um, I hope you take some solace in that. Um, I hope you maybe learn something new about that. Um, but to close us out, I-, I want to you know, briefly mention uh, the different birth accounts of Jesus's uh, birth in the Gospels. And so you know, we'll read Luke 2. We'll read Luke 1 this coming Sunday, the classics, uh, the, the, the stuff that Linus quotes in Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, you know, Matthew in the story of the Magi, we'll read when it comes to Epiphany and the escape to Egypt. Um, but you may have never realized that the four Gospels present, present or, or fail to present radically different um, stories about Jesus' birth. Well, you may have wondered why that is. And so just to summarize um, some of the differences that exist, um, Matthew and Luke both give genealogies. Um, and you know they're probably something that you've glazed over because it's a list of names and you may wonder why they're in there. Well, Matthew uh, traces Jesus's lineage through Joseph, um, focusing on Abraham, 
because Matthew is trying to make the case that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And so tracing him back to Abraham would be important for his Jewish audience. He is the fulfillment of Abraham. When God tells Abraham, I will make of you many nations, and through you all generations will be blessed, Matthew is saying, here's that fulfillment. Here is the seed of Abraham come to proclaim goodness to all the nations. Well, Luke, on the other hand, traces Jesus' lineage through Mary, and he makes the connection all the way back to Adam. Because Luke's gospel is going to be concerned with presenting Jesus as the savior of all nations, to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to all the ends of the earth. Well, which is true. Well, they both are. Matthew is concerned with proclaiming Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He is. Luke is concerned with presenting Jesus as the light to all the nations, which he is. And so the fact that we have two slightly different accounts of, of his genealogy shouldn't worry us. It's theologically important. Um, it gives us a, a broader picture of who Jesus Christ actually was. He was both the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the fulfillment and good news to the Gentiles. Luke has the annunciation and the visitation. Um, Gabriel's announcement of Jesus and, um, you know, Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah. Um, and then we have the visitation of Mary with her cousin Elizabeth. Those aren't in Matthew's gospel. Well, does that mean they didn't happen? Well, no. Jesus uh, or Luke is, is making a different point. And so, you know, he is compiling sources that he has. And, and Matthew may have different sources. Um, but they're telling, you know, the same story with, with different focuses, different uh, focal points. Um, Matthew mentions the Magi. Luke does not. And so, you know, you may not realize the fact that this picture of the nativity scene that you might have in your, in your brain with um, the Gabriel announcing to Mary and then the manger scene and then the visit of the wise men, well, that's kind of a, an enmeshment, an amalgamation of Matthew and Luke's birth accounts. And then Mark and John don't have it. Mark doesn't have a birth account. And John, um, rather than telling a birth story, has a uh, philosophical um, you know, segment on the eternal nature of the Son of God, the Word made flesh. John is, is less concerned with the historical details of the manger and more concerned with presenting the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Well, again, he's right. That is true. Jesus is begotten before all worlds. There was never a time when the Son wasn't. He was the Word of God who was there in the beginning of creation. That's true. And so they're, they're all, you know, all the gospel writers are taking different approaches to make sure we understand who Jesus Christ is. And that's, that's a good thing. But the fact that uh, <clears throat> they emphasize different things um, reminds us that when it comes to Jesus Christ, the historical nature of this, the historicity of his life actually matters. We may talk about the flood and whether or not it historically happened like it says it does in Genesis 6 and whether or not it was the whole earth or just a portion of it, and that's all well and good. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, the Bible takes on a different approach. These events actually matter. <clears throat> Jesus Christ actually died for us. He was actually crucified on the cross, and his physical body actually died 
and it was actually raised from the dead. The historicity of Jesus's life matters. And so the fact that we have different accounts in the Gospels is actually to our benefit. Um, think about uh, the classic example that, you know, you know, I heard in seminary and, and um, you know, in school growing up is uh, if you had four people who were asked to um, go to an event and then write notes afterwards about it. Well, they would all have different areas that they remember and different things that they stress. Are they all wrong? No, but when you put them all together, you actually get a better understanding of what really happened. And so the fact that Luke mentions Gabriel visiting Mary and Matthew doesn't is not a cause for concern on whether or not this really happened. It actually bolsters the idea that they're all focusing on different points, and when we view them all together, we have a better understanding of what was actually happening. And so the historicity of Jesus's life matters. So I hope you learned a little bit about the origins of Christmas, um, maybe some of the birth accounts and of Christian or Christmas practices. Um, hopefully it was not too dry for you, um, but Father Steve will be back next week or, or in two weeks. Um, and so we'll, we'll have our, our normal banter back then. But I hope you have a wonderful Christmas season. I hope you you know, have a great tree put up. I have you. I hope you have some great sweets. I hope you have um, a wonderful time with people around you who love you and remind you of the warmth of Jesus Christ and his loving embrace. But most importantly, I hope you find your way to church. I hope you find your way to Mass um, this Sunday morning. I hope you come back for Christmas Eve. And I hope you come on Christmas Day. Um, Christmas is the Christ Mass. There is no better way to proclaim the truth of the birth of Jesus Christ than by finding your way to church and by hearing the scriptures proclaimed and by partaking of the sacrament that is given to you. Um, it really is the grounding of all of this celebration. The trees and the candy canes and the gumdrops are all well and good, but you know it's like the story of the Grinch. That's not the point. The Grinch got something right, which is that the gifts and presents don't matter. The thing that they missed is that Jesus is the reason, but, you know, they got there. They got close. Um, but, you know, the, the trees and the, the practices and the food is, is all well and good. But find your way to church. Discover the truth of the Christmas season. Hear the nativity proclaimed and hear the good news of Jesus Christ given to you. So find your way to church, and I hope you have a wonderful Christmas season. Let's close with the Our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with us all evermore. Amen.